Hi, join us, Rad Chat, at the Oncology Professional Care, the UK's leading event for the whole oncology community. It is free for all healthcare professionals and is returning this year face-to-face to the Excel Centre in London on 24th and 25th May. Go to oncologyprofessionalcare.co.uk to book your place. everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So welcome to podcast number 48. My name is Joe McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Naaman Jolka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a huge thank you to our last guest, Dr Lisa Whitaker, who talked about the Radiation Reveal Project. If you haven't yet had a listen, please do go and take a look. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest for this evening. Pete Walroth, who will be talking about his role at the wonderful charity Mummy's Star. So, hi Pete, thank you so much for joining us. Evening, guys, thank you. Oh, so, you, anyone who listens regularly to the podcast will notice that Mummy's Star has been mentioned a lot by lots of our guests. Um, so it's great to finally have you on and and kind of show the recognition and give the recognition that this charity obviously deserves. Um, Pete, before we talk about the charity, can you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and what your current role is at the charity? Sure. So yeah, my my name is Pete Walroth. I'm the I'm the CEO, um, founder of the, of the of the charity Mummy Star, which supports families diagnosed with cancer in and around pregnancy. So any stage during pregnancy with a diagnosis or up to 12 months postnatally. Um, and I've been doing this now for coming up to 10 years, so quite a significant anniversary coming up for us all at the as a team. Um, and I suppose outside of that role, most importantly, um, I'm a dad of three. Um, I've got three, um, a girl and two boys. Um, I'm a very keen runner. I spend most of my time when I'm not sat at my desk in the hills. Um, much to much to much of their um, jargon, really. They probably wish I was I was sort of actually around at home a bit more often. Um, but yeah, it's just it's a really you know I've obviously explained a little bit more. But Mummy Star is just a, it's 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 opened up quite a niche within within an already you know fantastic cancer sector that you know offers a, an awful lot to so many people. But this was this was an area that needed tapping into um you know due to a, a personal situation that um unfolded you know um just you know coming up to about about 10 years ago in in june this year so um and everything has kind of snowballed since then in terms of the you know what we do and how this charity has grown over over the so pete what what do you do so we asked this question of lots of ceos um, and I think when you say I'm a CEO, I think people think you sit at a really large desk and you spend all your time writing emails and doing fundraising. But I know the role is a lot bigger than that. What is it that your day looks like? Oh, it's, it's it is literally everything. I think because because I'm a because I'm a, I'm the founder of a, a relatively small charity. It's it's everything, hands in everything. So I I you know I might be I might be meeting my my fundraising manager when we'll be talking about sort of different things that people are doing for us um you know how families are supporting us that we've supported in the past how friends have you know learned for even from whether it's from a local area people running a i don't know i got contacted by a walkers group yesterday doing something to you know locally to support us to a, you know sort of a national event that people are are wanting to you know sort of represent the charity at um it might be talking to somebody last week to um a European project that we're partnership in, in terms of looking at some research that's linked into the the, the international cancer and pregnancy network. Um, but I suppose the most important thing that I that I still am involved in on a day to day basis is actual supporting caseload. So I, 
even though we've got a number of tea in the team i still support any families that we get that come from from either northern or the republic of ireland so supporting those families on a day-to-day -day basis from diagnosis through to you know their treatment plan unfolding in front of them trying to help them map out sort of where support will be needed um also supporting partners as well across the board because i you know i have an insight um that the rest of the team you know don't in terms of actually what it's like to be a partner supporting somebody through a cancer diagnosis um it's involvement in policy work making sure that the, the the families and the situation that we support families through in terms of cancer and pregnancy is is better represented um we, you know within the the national you know sort of various cancer alliances but things like cancer 52 where it's a it's a rare situation within not so much rare cancer but it's a rare situation within the you know within the cancer world um and ultimately all of us together is 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 with the aim of, of broadening an understanding of of you know firstly that cancer and pregnancy does happen you know you still even after 10 years I, I do still come across people who just struggle to fathom that this is even possible um you know because we we hold pregnancy so sacred understandably and we you know i think we we've falsely fallen into the trap of thinking it's somehow immune to illness um outside of say things like you know diabetes and 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 um you know some other health issues that people might already have it's the occurrence of a cancer in pregnancy that i think is is where you know i'm certainly spending an awful lot more of my time in the last couple of years is working on education working on working with um universities delivering guest lectures you know non-clinical based lectures on um cancer and pregnancy as a subject and where different levels of the health profession can step in whether it's midwifery whether it's health visitors you know, whether it's you know therapeutic radiography oncology a cns it doesn't matter who is involved it's if you're involved within the maternity sphere there's a role you can play and it's about trying to broaden the understanding across the board of of about a relatively you know un, untouched subject and, a, and an often misunderstood subject as well in terms of what you can and can't do and what the options are for families and you might see when you go back to your inbox i've just i've just requested one as well actually for the university i work at as well so yeah, and I think absolutely, I think education is always going to be something that I'm extremely passionate about. But hopefully getting whilst people are training is so important to be able to provide them with some level of experience of things that they might not see clinically, but be able to use that patient voice or those experiences to then shape maybe how they will deal and support patients who are going through something similar. Absolutely. I mean, I absolutely, I love, I love doing the, the, the education sessions. It's built up. It started as a, you know, we'd get the occasional invite to do something at a midwifery society a few years ago. And then, you know, before COVID, it had started to build up. It was, it was quite frustrating actually, because we got into the, the, the start of 2020 and I literally was delivering a talk every other week and it was a fantastic momentum. And then all of a sudden COVID happened. And I remember delivering my last session on the I think it was the 13th of March in Nottingham to, to the Midwifery Society and then their university was literally starting to shut down that day in advance of you know what was inevitably going to happen but strangely the momentum didn't stop because they had the ability the universities to shift to that hybrid learning and um, you know and it still remains so you know largely but with many of them that I'm working with it broadened the audience because we had so many more students that could access it online whether it went and I suppose the, the, the challenge is always if it's a midwifery society because of the voluntary nature of it the, the, the students themselves they never knew whether they'd have 10 or 25 or 50 turn up whereas as soon as we went online with it I had like 50 60 70 90 students at times attending a session and it was fantastic to get that audience and to be able to you know I think hold the attention because of the nature of the subject I think it isn't one where there's a drift over the course of it I think because it, it, it you know we go through 
you know, case live case studies to try and illustrate how people can make a difference. But he, just the, the point you just made there, I think before they've got into practice, there's a. It's always really interesting when I run a like an interactive kind of um, role play with some students, where I give them anonymized examples of say something like um, a woman has been diagnosed at 29, second pregnancy. This is a previous pregnancy history, and this is the diagnosis. What would you do? And it's always interesting to see that when you hear it from a student voice, they go with their instinct. They haven't. They haven't been. In, um, they haven't been surrounded by any practice, positive or negative yet. They haven't had to work within strict parameters, so they go with their instinct. Everything is all about compassion, about informed choice, about listening to the to that family and to the you know what, what how does that person want to give birth? Where do they want to give birth? What are their fears and aspirations about that pregnancy? Whereas when you do it sometimes with an existing group of health professionals, they've been bound by parameters that have been set by their trust or the way they've had to get used to working over the years. And you get a slightly a slightly more restricted viewpoint. And, it's and I think that's what's really good about being able to encourage, especially student midwives, because historically I think midwifery hasn't seen itself as having a role within cancer, you know, perhaps, to be able to really put, you know, show them that this is how much of a difference you can make. You're not going to be an oncologist. We're not creating a, you know, a, a midwifery oncology nurse specialist role. But what we're, we're trying to offer is an illustration of, as I've, as I've heard the phrase so many times, that you're not just a midwife. You're, you are so much, you know, so much more than your role dictates because you're, you're inside. And if you just follow that compassionate care, it just opens itself up in this situation. And also the midwife offers that, that, really, that really powerful conduit between, you know, perhaps oncology, radiography and obstetrics, whereas it's just that I'm right here to represent that person who's going to give birth and their family. And where sometimes there's a disconnect when, when a cancer diagnosis happens in that particular situation. So, yeah, the, the education aspect of it is just it's just it's building and building and building. It's, it's really, really, really positive. We find now that um, with a lot of their health education training that we do a lot of integrated sessions. And I always remember the midwifery students and the th therapeutic radiography students going, we would never work together. And I just go. What? Absolutely, of course, there are going to be times that you will benefit from working collaboratively together. And it's just really interesting when you see those light bulbs going off, going, oh, yeah, we've never really considered that. Um, and definitely, I think that's where, from your perspective and, and what you're training people to do, really comes into play um, to kind of break down some of those barriers and look at how we can do more integrated, personalised care is that something that you found within your own experiences, Pete, in setting up kind of Mummy Star and, and going through that? Yeah, I, I think when we, when we look back on it, you know, and when I, when I do those sessions with students now, the, the standout example that I always give of what we, you know, what I would perceive to be positive care, you know, if every, if every family were looked after this way, then that would what be what would the aspiration would be. It, it does. It always goes back to myself and, you know, my late wife, Myers situation in terms of, you know how we when we received our diagnosis how was that diagnosis actually how did it come about who were the people who were integral in that happening so for example um you know something we're going to be working on later this year in terms of our awareness week campaign that we do each june is about you know that every every health discipline has a role to play so how can a midwife be part of the cancer diagnostic pathway well they can be the person she discloses that she's not happy with something she's got a you know something in the breast tissue that she's not she doesn't feel right for her but she might i don't know she might have had 
a, a different experience previously with a different part of the health profession so she doesn't want to disclose it to them but with the midwife she's got that bond of trust and she's willing to disclose that and you know for us it was the midwife that we that Maya disclosed to actually said I've just got this ache and I'm not entirely happy about it and and that midwife didn't hesitate she just said fine I'll make a referral to the breast clinic that's all we ask for if that happened in other in so many other situations it would make a significant difference and from there yes we received a diagnosis yes it was devastating but when I when I look back at that objectively the flow of how that process happened it was it was two weeks two weeks two weeks it was really really swift in terms of the decision making and I think that's what we now illustrate say look if you can if you can move through the processes this way and then midwifery plugs into this and says this is what you wanted to do just because you've got cancer doesn't mean that's all off the table. The certain, if clinical reasoning comes in as to why something has to change, like you can't have a home birth anymore, for example, because we want to induce you to limit the gap between, uh, say, final chemotherapy in pregnancy to first treatment after, then understandably there are there are reasons why that that those decisions change and, and things have to be moved around. But it's all about the language. It's about the communication. It's about explaining to that family and saying. This is why we think this is going to be the best course of action for you. Now, unless you're treating an oncologist, nine times out of ten, a family will say, okay, right, it's devastating, it's traumatic, but thank you for explaining it to us. And I think there's a subtle difference there between saying to somebody, this is what we're planning on doing, as opposed to just blustering in and saying, you're having chemo on that day and this day, and you just you feel done to as a, as a patient. You feel like you've not had any input, any choice. We, we sat in our MDT. As a, as a family, I, we, we sat there with the obstetric team, with oncology, with CNS, with a paediatrician. We had about 12 different staff there. You know, there was, and it, yeah, of course, it was medical terminology that was being used, but just physically being able to be present in that room, it felt like we had a level of involvement. It was good to see that the, I don't know, something, the, the example always comes back to me is that the level of steroid dose that was going to be deemed safe for her to have during pregnancy wasn't sewn up. Because even in front of us, the oncologist and the obstet obstetrician were still sort of arguing the toss as to what was going to be safe or not. Um, and it is that, it was, I think the, the, that approach, for example, came because the, the obstetrician at the time said, I've never dealt with a case like this. I don't know really what I'm doing. But it was his honesty, which is maybe is rare. It, it, maybe it shouldn't be, but it, but it is. It, that's what led to that really open MDT approach. I met him three years ago when I was delivering some training to his obs and gynae um, um, trainees and I just I, I passed him a piece of paper and I said look I said what you did for us as a family I said that is the standout care that we highlight and he was like but well, I didn't even know what I was doing and that was the first time I'd seen him in seven years and he was like but he said I'd never seen a case before I was like yeah but you were willing to say that you were willing to say I'm not best positioned to be able to make up the care plan on this so we need everybody involved and as a result of that that was why our our care was really really streamlined you know the midwifery adding extra scans in for us adding extra appointments where we could have fetal heart monitoring on the day we were due to come into chemotherapy they're tiny things in the grand scheme of things but i've seen it repeated over the years i've, I've you know we've we've put these ideas forward to obstetricians over the years and they've put it in place themselves and they said god that made a huge difference to that family it handed them control back of the, of their pregnancy when they felt like it was it was control was getting pulled away from them all the time um so yeah we you know we use that as the plat as the platform and uh, it, it always sounds a bit strange to say it but just because Maya died it shouldn't it shouldn't take away from excellent care in the same way that you can have a fantastic cancer outcome but your care could have been really the polar opposite of person-centered care um, and you know and I think that's why we've all, I've always used it and never hesitated you know to highlight it as a 
as, as the good example. And thankfully, we have seen it repeated, you know, several times over the years. We've had families where they've had, you know, pregnancy-wise, they've had fantastic, you know, pregnancy experiences. They felt listened to. They felt like they were just treated with utmost compassion. And they had informed choice at the end of the day. Um, you know, and then sometimes, sadly, you see the, the opposite cases where, you know, they feel like they've been, they've been shoehorned into a plan where they didn't really feel like they had an awful lot of choice. And we do, and we illustrate the the, the different, you know, the, those differing situations, you know, for so that they they don't think it's, you know, it's it's all going to be like Maya's case because I'm I'm not naive enough to think that 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 is even if it's the same hospital. I think honesty is always the best policy, as you said. Not everyone will have that mentality because you don't want to look like you're wrong or something like that. But that from the beginning, from any situation, whether it's oncology or not, it's really important. I mean, pregnancy in itself, not that I have children, but one day, I mean, hopefully, but lots of our friends have had problems trying to get pregnant, but even navigating that's hard, then you have a pregnancy and then something like this happens. It's trying to bring different kind of professionals together is really hard. And I think the only little caveat, kind of just going back to what you said, where midwives trying to integrate if you want in oncology. So like my role as a treatment review radiographer, it didn't really exist until like 2000, 2005. But that's it was always nurse led. So you'd have a radiotherapy nurse, they would have all the skills, all the knowledge about how to manage the side effects, but not necessarily the radiotherapy. And then eventually we integrated and decided, well, actually radiographers can do this, but they have that radiotherapy knowledge. And then obviously that stemmed into further into advanced practitioners, consultants, etc. But that's similar with midwifery. I mean, nurses don't have to know enough about radiotherapy, but they can understand what's going to happen within the body. I mean, we all do anatomy, physiology, everything, but it's how kind of you recognize there's a skill gap or something and it just grows and grows and you push and you go forward. So yeah, I, I think midwifery is it's an amazing profession. Um, just what, what they deal with. I think I know some people have probably watched this is, was, was it, this is going to hurt with Adam Kay and it showcases the differences of what they see on a daily basis and the personalities they have to deal with. Pete, you've, you've written quite a good blog, um, which I've read, I've read a couple of times actually this week. Um, which links to, I think you linked it on your Twitter account. You talk quite openly about post-traumatic stress disorder, so PTSD. Um, what is PTSD? And if you feel comfortable sharing, I suppose, your experience around what happened. Yeah, um, I suppose it's an interesting question because I suppose when it when it first unfolded for me, I didn't necessarily frame it as, as PTSD, but I guess that's probably the biggest issue with us for many people who do, you know, no matter how much it comes about. But I suppose... I suppose to, to delve into it, I think what I need to go back, I mean, obviously discussed earlier on about, you know, what what happened to Maya, referred to her, you know, in the fact that obviously in the past tense, because what, what happened to us, I suppose unknowingly at the time, you know, with, with the fact that she was diagnosed with cancer in pregnancy and, you know, midway through the pregnancy, even though we had all that excellent care that I described, I suppose there's two frames to that. There's, there's, there's Maya's timeline and how she experienced that pregnancy and what it gave to her. And at the time, obviously, I thought I was going along with that as well. And I felt that that was us and we were going through that together. Um, but I suppose two things happened. You know, we, we, you know we, we, we delivered our baby you know, safe and well and he arrived and he was, he was really good. But the, the starting point for this, I guess, is probably the fact that I, I kind of struggled to bond initially. Um, you know, with my with my son, because my, my priority was like, Maya needs my, my care, she needs my, you know, me to look after her, I just wanted to lie down and just, you know, sort of lie down with her when she was recovering from chemotherapy. And so I struggled initially with that, like, how do I, how do I, 
balance these two roles that I have as that of a, as a of a husband and that of a that of a dad with a you know with a newborn baby who can't do anything for himself. Um, now I got into a you know I got into a, a routine you know like 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 anything you know the nursery run and this that and the other but and then when Maya's cancer you know very suddenly and abruptly became apparent that it had advanced catastrophically because she went to the, the breast cancer you know looking curative and then the next thing sinus issues started and before we knew it she was you know blurred vision and struggling to see and walk straight and then it, it turned out then that she'd actually had a, a very aggressive spread to the meningeal um the meningeal lining um and from from actual diagnosis she died three weeks later so it literally unfolded at, at a rate of knots so there was no planning there was no what would you like to do if you know where would you like this to happen with the kids etc so no planning nothing but equally you know there by the grace of god i, I guess she, you know she didn't have to suffer it was it was very quick and rather than watching her you know decline in health over years which I, I, i've you know i know many people who've had to do that um and i dealt with you know my grief and i but my my role took on it was like i was a dad i had two little children i didn't really have time to sit back and actually take stock of what had happened um and before i knew it the momentum and the idea from when we started started so that suddenly kicked everything forward and we you know friends were furrowing around getting this idea together and you know bang mommy star had started next thing my anniversary first anniversary came and i kind of floated through that because there was loads of momentum around the charity and then as the years went by obviously mummy star became a more regular thing and you know anniversary started to hurt a little bit more but then everything settled down i was fortunate enough then to as I touched upon earlier on when we were chatting, you know, sort of I met my, my now wife, Nick, who used to be my, my neighbour. Um, you know, we, we got together and, you know, we very quickly became pregnant. And that was absolutely fantastic. It was something we both wanted and we were absolutely delighted. And Nick had actually drawn my attention to it earlier on. And she just said, look, there's, there's bound to be some difficulty here. And I was, you know, doing that, you know, unfortunately, I will say it, but, it, you know, some people might disagree. I did that typically male thing. I just went, oh, yeah, I'll be fine. Don't worry, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, trying to just be, you know, a bit, bit blustery with it all. And then I think what I remember first was we went to, we went to the sonography appointment. And I think I remember getting a little bit nervous about that, thinking, right, I wonder what this is going to be like, because... I couldn't remember ever seeing Merlin on screen. I remember Martha's scan in 2000, 2009, like it was yesterday. Um, and we had the scan for Flynn. And I, I was trying to like, why can't I remember seeing Merlin on the screen? You know, what, what is it that's, that's caused this? And I went to see my counsellor. And that's when the first time, you know, it got broached. I was like, this is the impact of trauma. This is, you know, you did experience a trauma. And not necessarily what we were talking about. The, the grief it was the fact that the cancer diagnosis happened during pregnancy so it was a form of birth trauma which again you know is something I talk about quite a lot now with students but that was the starting point of it just creates these blacknesses in your memory you'll just totally there'll be nothing there at all you can't see anything and I was like right okay we'll, we'll get past that and then you know the pregnancy continued and you know I did all those things that many of us look forward to you know resting my head on Nick's bump and you know singing and talking to baby and you know giving her massage and everything and again, starts to think, I don't remember doing this with Maya when, Merlin, when she was pregnant with Merlin. Why can't I remember these things? And then it settled down then. But what, what was interesting was I, in the midst of that period, I met a chap um, called Mark Williams, who's a guy from South Wales, really, really prominent um, campaigner on um, men's mental health, but particularly father's mental health. Um, and I got chatting to him at a conference in Dublin purely by chance with Nick. And he was explaining to me how he'd been diagnosed with PND after his wife had had an emergency C-section. And he obviously feared that she was, whether she would come back or not. And he didn't deal with this for 18 months, two years afterwards. And that's what probably made the, set the spark off. I thought, I wonder is this, 
something that I'm starting to suffer from. Is this connected to what happened years ago? Um, and I started talking about it a little bit more about just, you know, make sure you check in with partners at check-ins and when you're talking to families, you know, irrespective of whatever's going on around the pregnancy, make sure you have direct conversations with partners. Don't just talk to the person who's giving birth. Ask direct questions to the partner rather than passively through their wife or their girlfriend because that doesn't make you feel involved. It makes you feel more alienated from, from, from what's going on. So we went through everything. We, you know, we went into into labour with, you know, with Flynn again. We wanted a home birth. We thought we were going to have it, and it didn't quite happen. So we ended up going in, and, and Nick got induced. We ended up actually getting um, delivered by one of the founding trustees of Mummy Star, a lady called Nicolette Peel, who had had cancer years ago previously, had then retrained as a midwife because of her experiences of midwifery, and then full circle ended up actually being around we're like can you can you just nudge your shift just in case we go into labor that night and she ended up actually being there and delivering delivering Flynn bizarrely delivered Flynn on Maya's birthday which was just utterly you know like wow this is this is a bit strange synchronicity whatever you want to call it um but it felt like the kind of completion of a circle in a way for us at the time and it was it was magic and I obviously by then you know in 2018 I knew far more about like where my place was as a partner in the delivery room compared to how I had in 2009 where there was still an air of like yeah you just stand there and you just hold her hand and don't do anything else I was like get my top off I'm having skin to skin with my child because I know this is the thing that you can do now and it's really actively promoted and um you know Nick, Nick had you know Nick had some some blood loss postnatally so you know that she she needed to be um sort of seen to by the um by the team so it was like it gave me the opportunity to you know be able to have loads of skin to skin time with him and it was wonderful and it was like a, that was like it felt like a new experience as well where it really kicked in was I we then went home and obviously my perspective on the last time I had a baby was one framed by I'm the main carer there's only me the other person isn't physically able to do anything and I remember sitting there one night with with Flynn on my shoulder um, and literally just rocking him back and forth on the sofa and everything and unbeknownst to me Nick apparently was over on the other chair saying oh, I'll take him off you if you want if you're getting tired and I had no idea she was talking to me I literally had absolutely no idea she was in the room I didn't know what the what the room looked like where things were and I was just in this weird kind of trance it was like why would I give my baby to somebody else there is nobody else here to give my baby to because the last time I had a baby my wife was dead so why would I hand my baby over to somebody I'm the main carer and I think that was the first kind of time it was like, right, there's there's something clearly not not right here. You just you, know, you need to maybe sort of investigate this. And I think we you know we had somebody around the following day, the health visitor. But again, it was one of those where the the questions all went via Nick rather than sort of in, asking me a question as well. So it's like, how are you? And if I had been asked, I'm probably at that stage I would have actually said, Do you know, what? I don't think I'm doing that great because something happened the other day. Same thing happened again a few times, like, you know, Flynn would have a particular cry, a particular, you know, a particular pitch and a cry that just tells you something else. And it just threw me back to those nights where, you know, Merlin would wake up in his cot and I wouldn't be able to know how to necessarily respond to his needs in the same way that, say, Maya would have done. And I'd be in there in the room with Flynn and I'd be trying to nurse him and, and, and trying, to, trying to settle him. And I would literally then, I would just place him down in his cot and I would just walk out at speed out of the room, flying past Nick. And she'd be like, what's the matter, what's the matter? And I was like, I just can't, I can't deal with it, I can't deal with this. And it was just, it just threw back to those moments where it was like, but I'd normally turn to you and you're not here. Um, and there was a few other times it happened. And then I think that the, the, the crash point was, I went to University of Southampton. I actually did a talk a lot in the same program that, that Mark Williams, um, who I spoke about earlier did. And I talked about this again alongside a chap who talked about stillbirth. And I came home 
from Southampton and I literally I remember just crumpling on the sofa in in pieces just literally in tears and I remember just go, I remember going to bed that night and I remember literally just curling up in the fetal position with just just not wanting anybody near me and I came downstairs the following morning I sat I remember sat on the bottom of the stairs tying my shoelaces and Nick just came over and sort of put her put her arm around me and just just said I think I think we we know what this is don't we and and it, it and I think it was that thing of saying it out loud for the first time and saying, yeah, I think this is PTSD. This is not just trauma on its own. This is, there's, there's too many, much stuff coming back here. Um, and, you know, and, you know, for, at times, for, you know, for Nick, that was very difficult to deal with because she wants to be there for me and wants to be obviously be there for Flynn as, as his mum. But the pain that she felt watching me going through that and knowing what the cause was of it ultimately. Um, and I, I think... I mean, I, I, there was there were certain ways that I did deal with some of it. I had some EMDR therapy, which is like bizarre. It sounds like quackery when you say it, but then when you try it, it's actually quite miraculous. Like going back to the whole thing about Martha, say, for example, and the scan, and this is the tricks that trauma can play on you. I actually wasn't looking at the screen in the end. That's that's what it actually opened up to. I was I was standing looking at Martha in the room at three years old as she looked at the screen to see her reaction of seeing her little brother on the telly for the first time. So I never actually saw that picture. It wasn't that I didn't remember it because I remember, I remember the counsellor said, and where was Martha during this whole process? And I was thinking, where was Martha? Martha wasn't sitting at three years old in the hospital waiting room while me and Nick were with the sonographer. That's that's not how that happened. And suddenly it, it all it all unfolded. Um, but I think what it showed, and, and again, why, why I, I continue to talk about it now, is that if we drag it right back to the beginning, it's that footnote of telling somebody that they have cancer when they're, when they're pregnant, even if it's not the tangible type of trauma that we typically associate with birth, like a forceps delivery, emergency C-section, you know, sort of high-level postpartum hemorrhage, something like that. The fact that you've been told that something you have something that could kill you in itself has created catastrophic thinking, but it, and it has to it needs to be seen as that because if you for there on record that in somebody's notes like if we when me and nick had gone to for our antenatal appointment and somebody had just written postnatal bereavement it would have it just would have set red flags off to say look you need to keep an eye on this and it's not just limited to my situation you could you could have not you could have not experienced a bereavement but you could have had a cancer diagnosis that turned out well but you could it's still a birth trauma you could have had upteen different illnesses that you could you know you could have been told you have a um a benign brain tumor but it still puts limitations on the fact that you can perhaps no longer have a water birth so the i think it's recognizing that that birth trauma is is a much bigger field potentially that we you know than we than we anticipate and i think there were you know i've worked with some fantastic people over the years um jan smith is a, is a birth trauma specialist who you know i've even spoken to you know sort of in an unofficial well, she's almost counseled me in a way in the past of talking about how you know birth trauma does get so misunderstood and and why we feel the need to you know to push it away but i think as you touched upon at the beginning you know like what is ptsd when i had to confront that initially i just thought you know i've known people who've been in the forces that's as anybody's is my go-to was i haven't seen people get shot i haven't had to deal with you know friends being injured how can i possibly put myself in that bracket but i think we we are slowly but surely shifting away from that stereotypical image of what ptsd is and it that it, it the fact that it can be watching somebody get seriously injured that you love a car crash that you saw somebody that where the outcome could have been positive but it's seeing it the flashbacks and what it can do to you um and so I've, it's it's something i've always 
I think I will always be very happy to talk about it because it's always, in, I think, with a view on if that helps somebody else. As my, my chance meeting with Mark Williams did years ago, I don't know if I hadn't met him whether I would have felt validated to talk about that in the same way that, you know, Maya and I had a miscarriage years ago before we had Martha. It wasn't until I met people in the birth loss and pregnancy loss world that I learned that actually it was okay to feel that I'd had a loss, for example. So I think the, the, the power of validation in meeting other people in that situation, I think it's just, it's so undervalued, um, but it can really help draw out, you know, other people's experiences. And I've, I've you know, I've shared things like that with other, um, you know, other partners since, and it, it really helps develop a conversation that, that, that it won't, you know, one that needs to be happening. Well, firstly, Pete, thank you so much for sharing. I know you said it's, it's something that you know you're happy to talk about but it doesn't make it any less difficult i think i know we don't like to always use the term brave or courageous but i think it is to be able to open up about it and traditionally as men as we always say we're not very good at talking about our things like oh we'll be fine we don't need to talk about it and it builds and it builds and it builds and then it becomes something even bigger which obviously it was already quite a big thing anyway so that building further and it's great that you got some support through counseling how easy was it for you to make that step to get you know to go to a counselor I think I, I, I'd consider myself, again, I suppose going back to the male stereotypes, I would consider myself quite rare in that I've always liked counselling and I've always seen it as a really positive thing. My, you know, I, I think a, a mantra I've often sort of used with other people is sometimes when you feel great is when you probably should go and see a counsellor rather than waiting until you feel really, really bad because there's always something that's good to talk about. Um, so yeah, I think because I, I had accessed counselling in the past, I didn't find it as much of a, as much of a barrier um you know sort of when certainly when when Maya was going through her diagnosis and I realized I was like actually I'm struggling to hold everything together that was you know that was a bit of a, a bit of a crash but I saw the relief on Maya's face that it was knowing that I was going to now sort of get some support she she suddenly felt her anxiety levels drop a little bit because she'd been trying to hold it together for me um yeah I think I think counseling I think we it we I think we need to just we need to try and break it down as to something that is is far less far more informal than it's been made out to be in the past it isn't your your typical right you have to literally go right from the word you know years ago and it's you know talking about i suppose death and parallels for example you know sort of the love that you had for the person that's died and the love that you have for somebody now sometimes it just takes an impartial observer to say actually do you know what those two things are parallel they don't cross over you know your your love for my doesn't conflict with yours for nick and vice versa um but sometimes it's good to have that objective um you know input in, in a situation you could just be you know it might not necessarily need to be something as as significant as as cancer for example or you know or trauma or what we're talking about but yeah i think it's always a it's never a, it's never a bad outlet you know to have and i think what we're learning now even as a team at mummy star is to put in the benefit of i suppose the level just beneath that you know things like clinical supervision that you you know that you guys would have is we've put that in place for the team as well to say look we're talking about really emotive things all the time really quite traumatic stuff so we need to have an outlet professionally you know to be able to have it as well um the the trustees do like conveniently remind me and say it's great that you've got some provision for the trustee for the for the staff and and what about you and i'm always like yeah i'll get to that one once i've sorted everybody else out i'll get everybody else i'll get i'll get myself sorted as well um but no it is i, I think it's I, I i can't as you can probably tell place a you know a greater value on it it's it's been uh i won't go so far as to say for me it's been a lifesaver but it has certainly it's helped me untangle um a lot of real mess that i got myself into over the years yeah and i think it's it's interesting how you describe trauma or ptsd so for me i think anyone's ever said i've had lots of friends in the military as well 
they've talked about that's PTSD. That's all it is. But actually, as you said, could be a car crash. It could be domestic violence. So that was my experience of PTSD. And I never understood the depression, anxiety, that side of things. Obviously, nothing related to cancer, but it's trauma and how it affects you growing up. I suppose it, it, it doesn't really hit you till you're an adult. So taking that first step to go. So I did cognitive behavior therapy, CBT. Um, which was hard. I know that's a really good way to get around PTSD because it focuses on maybe one or two specific memories or of trauma and then you build on it, build on it, keep repeating it to the point where it almost normalizes what happens and then you get through it. I know in pregnancy loss or something like that, CBT is known, I think, in evidence that it does really help. Um, did you find that for your children that you did any extra support um, kind of going through it? It's been strange with the, with the children because they... They have two very, very different experiences. So you have Martha has was three at the, or three and a half at the time of Maya's death. So she had, she has a, a number of tangible memories of, of her, of her mum that she's you know, can carry forward. She doesn't she doesn't necessarily remember all of them as explicitly as I do, but she's recalled things over the years as she got older. And I think I never realised you remembered that when you know when when mummy died. Um, Merlin's very, very different because he was 10 weeks old when Maya died. So his his memory is one that has been developed with a narrative um, over the years of things that I've shared with him, you know, that, he's, that his sister has shared with him, that, you know, that, that Nick has come into our family and, and embraced. And, you know, and obviously they see Mommy Star where they both know the foundation of the charity is, is, is solely, you know, on, on, you know, on Mummy and the, the name, you know, of the charity is based on how I first described, you know, sort of where Mummy would be to Martha every bereavement specialist in the country will probably turn around and go don't tell them that mummy's a star but you know what if it works it works and it's it's something that they can explain and it, it does alleviate over the years in terms of how they work out that yeah that's the idea and that's the spiritual aspect of it and many of us are spiritual and then those of us who who aren't can see it in you know the cold light of day which is yeah she was here one minute and the next minute she was gone but there wasn't any other way of describing that I, I use some great literature with the kids it's literature that i still recommend to a lot of families nowadays um but yeah it's it's been there's been times when they've had some some counseling and they've been to um you know services to to talk about you know about what they what they feel but it's there they, it's been at that age where they do an awful lot of sort of like play and craft therapy and um and play therapy um and you know to allow them the opportunity to to sort of air their feelings about what it is they they miss for example so you know the fact that there, there is there is a group of feelings for one and memories and then for the other there isn't and you can never replace that um but then arguably is it more difficult to have older children who have had much longer memory and have even have even more that they actually can miss because we're in this strange situation now where where let's say for example nick has actually been part of their lives for longer than than their mum was and we're getting to this strange juncture now where Flynn is starting to ask questions about, so who's that? It's like, no, no, that's Martha Merlin's mummy. And he, he's like, yeah, but anyway, you get these funny questions going on. Don't get me wrong. It's it's surrounded by love and it's really embraced that we, we've never hidden away from it. We always have talked about death and dying and cancer and you know, they're, they're things that we're surrounded by as a family. You know, I, I probably know more people with cancer than I do without. It's just the nature of how our life has spun in that direction compared to where it was, you know, 10 years ago. Um, but I suppose my hope as a parent, and if I was to put my professional hat on, if I can ever call myself that, is that because the narrative is always there and it's always constantly evolving, it will help their understanding over time that this won't be a taboo subject, that if they suddenly in years to come find that a friend is diagnosed with something like cancer 
that it won't hit them like a ton of bricks in the same way that it would do if, for me, when I first learned that a family member got diagnosed with cancer years ago, you know, where I didn't know what Macmillan was, because why would I? Why would I avail of that when I've never known anybody? Um, you know, and it, it, it's still, it's unfolding now. You know, they, one is going to be a teenager. The other is going to be a teenager in three years. They're going to go through all manner of, of feelings. I wouldn't be surprised if one of them really kicks back in the in their, in their teenage years and says this is unfair you know get the anger the anger stage and that grief you know really really comes out it's an unknown um i'm in the fortunate position where i can avail of a number of services because of the people that i've come to to meet over the years you know i've got up team you know links and connections with you know bereavement whether it's fruit fight collective or whether it's you know cruise or any of the you know any of those wonderful bereavement organizations that are out there and the resources that they have but it's, I suppose, where I would be concerned is the the wider world there and, and other families in a similar situation is, is is for them to know who is out there for them to be able to reach and also to trust your instinct as well. I think I think sometimes we get a little bit, bit a little bit hung up on don't say this to children and don't say this to children and I, and I'm all for not saying mummy's gone to sleep because it is it's a lie and there's no point in getting away from that. But I think using something that that child can 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 meet you on I think is is a little bit different in terms of where their understanding is and you've got to do it you know I think there's a halfway house you can find in terms of trying to explain things like that terminology is really important I think um mm. from my background growing up in India we're very open and honest about death and what to expect and what happened it's still a taboo subject but within your closed family you do have a discussion mm. Joe I know you have lots of discussions with your little boy about everything <laughs> I do. I remember having a discussion actually with a really close friend about the fact that Noah saw his grandparent pass away. And I always remember the palliative care nurse telling us as a family, you might want to be a bit quieter because she's not going to go when you are all essentially having a party. And I think it was really, it was really bizarre because for us, we knew that that's how Nana wanted to pass away with her whole family around her. There was music on, we were all talking, we were supporting each other. And I know she would have absolutely loved her death. Um, it was definitely the death that she wanted. But for Noah as well, he, he very visibly saw someone pass away and he will talk about it now, but he, he looks on it favourably. He's like, it was really nice that I got to say goodbye to Nana. And mm. I know how someone looks when they've passed away. And he wasn't scared because we weren't scared. Um, and I think it's really important. And I know there's, obviously, it's a very personal decision and a very personal choice for every parent. And they have to make whatever's, you know, the right decision for them. But I'm really proud of the fact that we're really open with Noah. Um, and obviously, exactly like you, Pete, I talk about cancer all the time. So, you know, he's very much aware of what cancer is and um, are looking at your bodies and things like that. I suppose it's it's part of being a healthcare professional, but also in the industry um, that we're in, it essentially yeah. allows us to have conversations that I maybe wouldn't have if I, if I wasn't. Yeah, and, and I think I think on that, I suppose that point about, I suppose, seeing, seeing death occur, I mean, I, I remember years ago having a debate at the time going do we do we take Martha to say for example to see see Maya once more before you know she inevitably will die in the next few days and it was and everybody else I think around me was a little bit like oh yeah do you want to take her in that situation I said from my perspective as her dad 
If I don't take her, I can never give that back. If I take her and she feels traumatized by having seen her in that state of ill health, I can counsel that in some way and I can seek professional help. What I can't do is get somebody to counsel a memory that didn't exist. Um, and that was always my perspective. I mean, yes, they didn't attend Maya's funeral, but that was because they were of the age. I mean, you know, Merlin was, was, was there in part because he was a baby, but, you know, it was, it, it was, well, it just, their understanding of it wouldn't have, they wouldn't have made sense of it. Whereas, but the, the flip side of that though is, you know, tears and upset and, la you know, laughing, laughing and crying about situations and memories, that's always been right in front of them. You know, I've, I've, I've broken down countless times in front of the kids because um, I've, I've got upset. God, I remember, I remember getting upset when Martha handed me a doll a few years ago and asked me to just, just undo, um, put some different clothes on it. And I was just on one of those days where I just couldn't do anything really, really straightforward. And I just, I was trying to put these, these dungarees on this doll. And I just suddenly, just for no reason, just, just started, just tears just started flowing. And, and she, she, I mean, she gave me a hug and she was like, are you okay? And I said, yeah. And I just, and I said, I just, I just miss you mum. And it, I would, I would hate to have hidden that from her. Because what I've always tried to bring them both up in, and you know, and Nick has, has carried this forward because she's a teacher and she, you know, she knows the importance of all this anyway. Because she's, you know, she's very heavily focused on things like mindfulness, and it's the the strength of being able to say, no, this is how we should feel, and this is what feelings look like, and tears are are just part of that. When it starts to cross the border between tears becoming angry, I think that's where we need to have an intervention that's you know that that's positive and gentle. But I think it's just it's making it comfortable. You know, I remember her with a Barbie years ago where she put the Barbie into the hospital and laid it down because it was sick after having a baby. And I remember, you know, there was a, a discomfort in the lounge and I was like, oh, maybe we need to just distract her with something else. I was like, no, guys. I said, if that's what she's seen it as, that's what she's seen it as. What I did have to undo was I remember visiting a baby for the first time after Maya died. And then when walking home up the, you know, up the road and Martha said to me, oh, well, you know, will such and such's mummy die now that she's had the baby? And I was like, no, right. I said, let's just talk about this that the baby doesn't make this happen just in the same way that your brother didn't cause this. It's just something horrible happened at the same time, but there's not, as we would describe, there isn't causation between the two. Um, and obviously over the years, she's seen many more babies born. She's seen, but she did have fears when Nick was pregnant. You know, we thought she was coasting along with it. And then it came, became apparent that actually she did have some struggle because she genuinely worried when, when Nick went into labor as to whether something would occur again. Weirdly, I didn't. I don't. I don't know why I didn't necessarily worry about about that reoccurring for us. But obviously, mine was associated with her brother and and that transference. But for Martha, it was there was an element of um, I suppose of of flashback in in a way um, as to what was occurring because it again it was going into pregnancy again. But then it dissipated as soon as they saw the little brother. It was just like we've got a little brother. Let's go and see him. And everything you know, it seemed to it seemed to sort of just slowly but surely ease after that. Pete, you talked about obviously an emotional area or challenging area that you you know you're working with Mummy Star and your colleagues. Um, you mentioned clinical supervision. What is clinical supervision? How does it help? And what other things do you all do to kind of look after yourselves? Well, the the idea for having supervision, I think, had probably had probably been there for for a couple of years, but it wasn't until the team grew, I think, a little bit more during the during the COVID period, um, where. It was the emotional toll of, of because the I suppose the intensity of the support we were offering families during the COVID period went up where we, we did see we saw a slight um a slight reduction in the number of new families getting in touch with us because they probably because probably because they weren't spending as much time in hospital to be able to get given our information the same way they would have done. But at the same time, 
the families that were already in touch with us, the anxiety levels went through the roof because they were concerned about, you know, getting into a hospital, being able to have to go in there themselves. Um, obviously, the uncertainty about any trial medications that people were going to be going into, whether treatments would get cancelled. So the intensity went up significantly. And the team, as a result of that, they really felt it because we have a very, very personal connection with all of our families at Mummy Start because it's, it's very, every family, is, it's tailored around them and their specific circumstances. So it's not about, it's not about a family coming to us and us saying, right, here's the template this is what we offer how do you fit into this it's very it's total opposite it's it's where are you at what gestation what's your treatment plan you know when are you due to have um you know surgery and then potentially you know sort of radiotherapy afterwards and then we'll go right well within that we think we can probably help here and we can help you a bit here but also have you thought about these other things that could come up in you know over the space of time somebody gets treatment plan they go into a whirlwind and they can't see the wood for the trees a lot of the time so it's trying to help unpick that for them and shape it as a result of that though we develop a very very personal connection you know with families we can often see things before they can that are going to potentially be trip hazards one of our families said last year in a i think she said in a quote you know, one of the support workers, she said, how, Rebecca used to get in touch with me before I'd even realised that I was going to have a bit of a trip. How did she, you know, she's like, what kind of sorcery was this? And it's it's just tailoring it to get to know the person who you're supporting, you know, putting dates in our diary to know when that woman is going to have a scan so that she will probably be getting anxious three to four days beforehand. The insight for that comes from both the experience that we have supporting all those families but just bizarrely, the fact that most of the people that work as part of our team, they've got a direct experience of cancer and pregnancy. They've either had it themselves, they've had a partner get diagnosed while they were pregnant, or like in my case, you know, I supported somebody, you know, and then and then sort of saw them saw them die. So they're pouring in a lot of personal insight indirectly into these families, and also then you're sort of working and supporting those people through what they're going through whether they have you know a positive cancer outcome and no evidence of disease and they're on regular checks or whether that you know somebody gets diagnosed with metastatic disease and they go through that roller coaster with them and i think during covid obviously the anxiety around all that went up so significantly that they just really felt it as a team and we had you know we had days where we were having team meetings and there was just there was a lot of tears there was a lot of uncertainty there was a lot of anxiety had just become clearly evident and it was like do you know what we've got to get something in place so by providing that supervision environment and providing that external outlet for the team, it wasn't me that they were trying to air these feelings to because I actually wasn't probably helpful at that point in time. I was too close to it. So they needed that external voice to be able to talk about, you know, so as, a, as a team, I guess, what they were doing, what their process is that they go through, but also where the potential, you know, trip hazards are and where they can learn to maybe pull back a little bit, but also set their own parameters, saying, you know, we can pour ourselves into everybody, but if we do that, what have we got left for ourselves? Um, and there was also, a, but but I think even prior to supervision coming in, uh, what the, the emphasis with everybody that's always worked with us has always been, you, you, you do a support call for somebody, you get up and you walk away from the desk and you don't come back for about an hour because you need to decompress from the fact that you have just supported that person that intensely in that space of time, whether your, whether your thing is to take the dog for a walk or go for a run, go and do some yoga, go and just have a, have a, a walk down the river, go and do an exercise class, go and read for, you know, for an hour. It doesn't matter what it is, but it's do it and don't do it in your own time, do it in work time. That's always been the emphasis because people have said, yeah, don't worry, it's fine, I'll, just, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, fi I'll finish later on. It's like, no, I said, I want you to just walk away now because it's now that the pressure is being felt and if you carry on working and slogging it for the next three hours you'll get a get to a point four hours later and you're like oh 
God, that really was, you know, that was pretty full on. And and also to have the clarity, I think, of, of reflection to be able to um, to be able to go away and then sit back at the desk later on and go, right, I'm going to write this up now. What's just happened? What's my plan for the next three or four months? I, I do it all the time when I'm in a bit of a muddle trying to trying to think of how to present something well and I'll go for a run and halfway around that reservoir, there'll just be this oh right that's how I could that's how it, it, it could be done that, that's how to present and then suddenly you come back five minutes later present presentations just written and that's it but it needed that clarity of thought and you can't get that by trying to think of something else staring at a laptop for you know for another three hours so it's it's always been there all the staff are always also given the opportunity if ever they want to um to seek external counseling um it's something we fund as an organization it's something for there for them at any point that they want whether it's a permanent thing whether they want it for a block of six weeks it doesn't matter it's just that the emphasis is always on making sure that we as a team are are looking after ourselves first and foremost before we ever think about anybody else um and again it stems from the fact that we are reliving some of some if not all of you know of, of what we we do we we see cases sadly sometimes where you know, as I'm sure you guys have, in, you know, in, in therapeutic radiography, you, you, you just see somebody sometimes and you just, you just get an instinct that it's not going to end well. And it's just, it, it goes against every grain, grain that you want to, but you can just tell it just, there's something about it. And sometimes there's cases I see, it just looks like Maya's case. And sometimes it's a fantastic outcome. And other times you just, I don't I don't know how to describe it you just there's just an inner inner instinct that just just tells you you know I, I, I don't have a good feeling about this and you have to wrestle with that yourself and you have to obviously hold that back and if it works out well then that's that's wonderful but we know sadly sometimes with certain types of cancers that we see you know when we hear somebody they got diagnosed with bowel cancer having had six previous presentations at a hospital or, or at a, another health juncture we know that the chances of that potentially metastasizing are probably getting higher by the week um and you know we just we just we we've got to try and sort of i suppose keep that in check and again it's the easiest way is being able to air that to somebody or or but also within the team as well i mean you know i think there's a lot to be said for as much as you know covid has been devastating what it has pushed us all into forcibly is this idea of virtual time and we we meet as a team now more than we ever did prior to covid we never used to meet each other for six you know for sorry for four caseload meetings a week we just never did it but now our, our insight into our own families is so much higher, um, you know, because of it. And, and it, it helps us, I suppose it helps us be there to celebrate as well, because I suppose when you when you reel all this back, let's not forget that we're there in, a, we're there supporting people, you know, through pregnancy or through new birth or, you know, through through a loss that they've experienced. So we've got to be able to be there to offer them the, you know, if, if something is there to be celebrated, you know, we're often the first people that say congratulations to a new mum. You know, that's just that's just wrong we shouldn't we shouldn't necessarily be the people that do that but the reality is we are and we embrace it and it's it's always sad when we hear that from somebody but equally it's this it's the jest in which it is said is thank you so much for reconnecting the fact that i am a pregnant person and that is my 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 status is that not that of a cancer patient that's not my primary status in the health sphere mine is of a, is a, a as a new parent likewise for you know um you know for somebody who's lost a baby for any manner of reasons whether it's miscarriage whether it was it was you know um or the pregnancy had to end due to due to the cancer diagnosis it's making sure that it's recognized that your primary status is that of a grieving parent not as not you don't suddenly become just a cancer patient because you've lost your child you know that trauma will will live on but also you know as as you know a previous guest sarah you know 
discussed. You're, you're contending with loss and then potential loss in the future because of cancer treatment, because of fertility. You know, we've got to support people through all those stages, and we, we want to do it. Um, and it's, but it's, it's obviously making sure that where we see triggers, we see it and we go, right, actually, do you know what? I'm, I might actually just give this to one of the, the other team. If that's the same type of cancer that that person was diagnosed with, then it might be better that somebody else deals with that because there could be some alarm bells. But it's we set that in stone right from the off with anybody who, you know, any of the team that work with us. I mean, we're now a team of eight, um, you know, which obviously isn't a massive team, but in the, in the scale of what we do, that's a big, big jump from it being just me in my kitchen <laughs> years ago um, in terms of how we've developed over the years. But back then it was me supporting about 11 or 12 families not you know a team of eight supporting you know having supported 1500 families in the last you know over a 10-year period so and you carry those memories you, you know there's little things about those families that i can still remember the first time i lost a mum years ago and i remember how devastating it felt and that's still how how we feel now when we you know when we hear one of our families you know sadly has, has died as a result of their cancer because we've had that connection but just you know and just as much you know, as you know, as we we learn with each of those families, they teach us. And I think you know, um, again, just just going back to you know what something that Sarah said on one of your previous podcasts, I learned an awful lot about loss and how to frame loss within Mummy Star when I you know when I I supported you know Sarah and her family through the you know when she lost Jacob because I think it was it was about the fact that we were very from the outside very it's all about pregnancy and it was all about new birth and it didn't really say. And if you lose your child as well, if you lose that much, much wanted baby, are we also there for you? So subtle changes like the mission statement for the charity used to be supporting pregnancy through cancer and beyond. It now is cancer, cancer support in and around pregnancy, birth, loss and, you know, and beyond because it does. It sadly happens, you know, whether it's like whatever the form, however loss occurs tragically, it's it should be it just should, it should be the primary focus within that care team. You know the cancer. The cancer's there. The cancer's going to be, you know, have, we'll have a treatment plan. But that's that's what that family need at that moment in time. And we say this to midwives. You know, offer all the normal care you would for a family. Normal care is normal care in loss. The bereavement care, the footprints, the handprints, the you know, giving time with baby. Not just whisking you know that family off to say right. Well, we we've got to get this cancer treatment kick started straight away. You know, those that's not their priority for those families at that moment in time. It's that it's it's what they're trying to contend with. Um, you know, so it's it's a constant learning journey and I think the supervision was part of that learning journey in terms of yeah, could it have been done earlier? Of course it could have done. Um, you know, and I've and I've always I've been honest about that. It, it you know, it should have been done earlier. But we learned and we you know, and and it is in place now and every new you sort of member of the team that will ever join us will always benefit from that as well and, and see sort of why and how we prioritise it. It sounds like an amazing amazing place to work um and you're going to get everyone going onto the website seeing if you've got any vacancies all the time now. <laughs> um <laughs> Pete, I, I know from speaking with Lisa um, on the last episode of the podcast, it really resonated with me when she said that, you know, she'd spoken to you personally and you said congratulations on becoming a mum. And she very vividly said that she always remembers that as being a pivotal point because it was the first time that anyone had really kind of said that. Um, whilst also kind of referring to her cancer diagnosis. Um, so it, absolutely fundamental. I think it's remembering that, isn't it? And I'm, and I'm just thinking about maybe people in the audience who are healthcare professionals who are focused on that cancer 
And it can be really easy to just think that that patient's primary concern is going to be, you know, treating the cancer when actually you're not. You're treating the patient and you're having to personalise that care and consider what that person has been through. And I know Naaman and I, as part of the podcast, bleat on about it all the time around personalised holistic care, making sure that you do treat the whole person. And that includes the family and whoever else is attending with them if they have children but also thinking about what have they been through previously and we've had a fertility expert yep. on the podcast um doctor no professor alan pacey um mbe now um but some of his his kind of um thoughts and feelings around you know when you are supporting cancer patients and knowing maybe that they won't have children that in itself fundamentally will obviously cause some psychological impact on going through treatment knowing you're doing something to your body that may save your life but it will inadvertently affect it and you know if you are wanting to have children and have that taken away from you it must be absolutely devastating and something that in itself will cause a lot of distress yeah, absolutely. I mean, we when we talk about beyond support at, at Mummy Start, it, it is it's it's exactly that. That's one of the things it encompasses. Is that I suppose it's this notion of of grieving whilst living, you know, and that it, that grieving what that that isn't always associated with you know with death and dying. It's that grief of, you know, what who who am I? What was what were my aspirations? Yes, we did want to grow our family, or we wanted to start a family, and because of you know cancer and treatment, that's now been taken away, or, um, you know, my my mobility. You know, in our case, you know, in terms of everybody that we support with cancer, it's it's that loss of femininity, the the impact, you know, sort of body confidence, sex and intimacy, induced early menopause, all of these things that we don't talk about. I mean, we, we, we do in the sense that there are more people talking about them now, like Liz Reardon is just like, she's just, she's magic in the sense of she's brought drawing attention to so many of these issues. Um, you know, again, drawing on, you know, on deep personal experience, but these conversations have needed to have happened. And I think I was talking to somebody the other day of the conversation on Twitter where, you know, these things, we, we when, when somebody gets, when somebody is, is, say, discharged, and I know the language about this is constantly changing in terms of given the all clear, no evidence of disease, whichever way we phrase that, the day we give that news to somebody, that's that's one day and that is like somebody gets caught up in the whirlwind or not of either ecstasy of yes this is great i can start getting back to normal or there's this there's a muted okay but what does everything look like now and i think we almost need another appointment then two weeks later to say right now that we've given you that news there are other things we do need to now talk about symptom management if you become symptomatic again do you know what to do are you aware that the menopause is going to potentially kick in as a result of this all right it's it's all those steps rather than people but it's People accidentally fall into them, and the next thing you're in a crisis. There's a you know there's a you're 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 struggling in a relationship, and you can't understand why, and nobody knows what language to use around these subjects, and nobody understands why somebody isn't really celebrated because they've been told they've got no evidence of the disease. Well, I'm sorry, if you were a 27 year old woman, and you were get told that you know everything's absolutely fine, and the next thing you find you know for, for, as one example that you have literally no sex drive, that is going to hammer your confidence along with you know all the other aspects of that cancer you could have you could have scarring you could have um you know you could still be be living with the effects of hair loss and it's like why why are we not putting a package of support in place to see people through this and i'm, I'm not saying menopause is any you know is any less um you know emotionally hammering for somebody in at 55 or 65 than it would be at somebody at 25 
And I suppose we need to be realistic in the sense of your expectations of what you can do in the next 10 to 15 years at that stage are going to be, are going to be different. And if you're about to start a family, for example, and then suddenly you're told you can't because of menopause or, you know, because of any of the other issues we've discussed, I think it's, it, needs, it needs a different level of attention to it than trying to deliver all of that in the, in, in the same day that you're told that you've, you've got, you know, a positive cancer outcome or, or not, as, as the case may be. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we've, you know, we, we've, we've run a, a series of Ask the Expert sessions over the last 12 months trying to drill down on all of these issues, whether it's, you know, we've done them on, on pain management. Liz, Liz did one on, on sex and intimacy recently, um, menopause, you know, money matters, you know, all these things that creep in, returning to work. You know, what, what does that look like, you know, for a different person, from one person to the next, depending on the type of cancer you've had. Some people's expectations of somebody with thyroid cancer are that, oh, well, that always has a really good curative rate, so that'll be fine. You'll be back to work in no time. It's like, well, no, not if that woman was quarantined from her baby for two weeks after it was born because she had to have radioiodine. That trauma will live on for years, you know, and and then you, you you know you end up in this this mess of yeah but you know that cancer is you know is the better one to get out of this one it's like who is coming up with this language you know it's cancer is cancer it's relative to the person and their circumstances and the timing that it happens that but I think it's you know I, I suppose we, we it'd be an entirely different podcast for a you know, subject on language around cancer let's let's not go down that route yet. <laughs> I hope everyone has commented on the 10-year plan because absolutely everything you've commented on went in what I was writing about 10-year plan. We need long-term late effects clinics. We need the support and not that geographical postcode lottery that exists or I'm a well-educated person who can utilise my networks and connections and you know access charitable organisations. It needs to be consistent, doesn't it? And then routes for other people to access. So yeah, um, I'm hoping that lots of people have commented on that 10 year plan and then that we get a government that actions it. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was, I was sort of being a bit flippant with, with my wife about this earlier on. I said it was amazing how we, we suddenly were able to just magically make money appear when the COVID crisis happened. But for all the years beforehand, we didn't have that money. And now that COVID is is settling in the loosest terms of the word or not suddenly we have no money now to action anything whether it's the cancer crisis whether i mean for us we, we could look at both we've got the cancer crisis and the 10-year plan on one on one side and we've got the result of something like the ockenden review last week on the other where it's you know the maternity service is full stop even before that review last week there's not enough staff they're, they're leaving in droves and it's like how it's the short termism i think is is the, the biggest challenge with all this rather than saying look this is not going to be solved overnight but I mean, I, I was, you know, almost sort of bit joking about it needing a, a Kitchener-esque, you know, we need you um, recruitment drive, but with like five to seven year plan to say, yes, it's not going to be right now, but next year it will be and try and re-recruit on a, on a short term basis some of those staff that are out there that do have the expertise in these areas just to try and plug some of the gaps. But, you know, we did it during COVID. Why can't we do it now that we know the NHS is, is you know, is, is in a, a similar crisis, but for different health reasons? So, Pete, we could probably talk to you all night. Um, We have well gone over our hour. Um, So, Pete, for anyone listening, are there any top tips you'd love for people to take away? My my main thing is just is seeing that that person for for where they come into your care. And, you know, in our cases, no matter what health discipline you are in, that person is a you know is a pregnant person first and foremost or a new parent first and foremost yes they are being treated for cancer 
but that is how they see themselves and we need to treat and we need to support and we need to provide the care package around them accordingly rather than trying to push the pregnancy into the background um i think if we if we can if we can achieve that i think we we're, we're it's going it, to it lends itself to far better you know sort of person-centered care long term even even when the even when the cancer outcomes aren't going to be positive I think it's the fact that that we set that foothold in place and I think that carries through you know through everything it's almost um, and I think from a I suppose from a cancer treatment and diagnostic perspective it's that message that you know it doesn't matter who you are within whatever health discipline is that you will you do have a role to play within that you know your, your midwife is just as capable of being the referrer the, the first referrer for that person when they disclose that they're not you know that they're not happy with the way something feels as the oncologist is to tell them that they do or don't have cancer as the gp is everybody has a role to play within that pathway and the main thing is just don't delay don't refer back to somebody else to do it it's if you if you've got it in your gift then you know make that referral and see yourself as having you know out see yourself outside your role if you like um and it you know it goes right back to you know what i said earlier when i you know when i hear you know midwives and student midwives say to me so regularly but but i'm just a midwife it's like you're not just anything nobody none of these roles are just anything in the same way that you you guys you know talk so eloquently about this going you know in terms of you know sort of get the role known correctly talk about it you know rather than just shorthandedly referring to radiography and it's your title is therapeutic radiographer because it encompasses so much more you know than purely that clinical specialism it is that holistic view of, of you know of, of of the patient and everything that is going to be impacting and affecting them in different ways so um yeah it's probably not that succinct a way of of, of phrasing that but it's probably the best, the best <laughs> i can i can sort of put it together at the moment is yeah it's just it's it, everybody has a role in this um you know pregnancy postnatally it, it doesn't matter it's just making sure that that family are seen for where they are at at that moment in time no they're perfect and pete if I'm out there in practice and I come across someone who has recently been diagnosed with cancer, has got a small child, um, how do they refer to Mummy Star? Uh, really simple. Either just just email us info at mummystar.org or you can do those referral forms, contact forms on the website that you can go straight through. There's a section for health professionals on our website. There's a referral form in there, and it's not we're not asking you for loads of information. It's really shorthand, basic you know information sort of what the situation is what the diagnosis has been what gestation they are um but yeah it's not we're not asking you to fill out reams and reams and reams of paper it's just as quickly as we can get that family in touch with us um the better um but the important thing to remember is that we're not just there for the families it's for the health professional as well because you guys might see somebody like this and you're like i've never never dealt with this before how do i and sometimes we can just be that sounding board that you need to just say i just need to talk about it i just need to tell you what i'm doing um if you've got any ever extra advice tell me and nine times out of ten it's like keep doing what you're doing but sometimes somebody needs to hear that perfect oh well thank you so much um oh, it's a pleasure as i said we could definitely keep talking all night but um i really hope people have enjoyed that episode so thank you all for listening to rad chat your hosts today have been myself jay mcnamara and Naaman Jelka anderson a huge thank you to our guest, Pete. Head over to the YouTube page to see a live recording of this podcast. And if you're utilising the podcast for CPD purposes, please do consider the reflective questions posted alongside. We'll also link some of the resources and literature to things that we've discussed. And to receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form that is attached to the podcast. So our next guest to feature will be Zoe Marchant, who will be discussing everything prehab 
rehab and personalised care. So thank you all for listening and take care. Thank you.